Hi, I'm Gordon Lampier with the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we have in-depth conversations with real estate experts, entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists. We're shaping the industry and as a result, our world. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Wyatt Clark. I've known Wyatt since high school. He's always taken a creative approach to investing and been brave enough to explore the world outside of his comfort zone. On the podcast, we discuss Porto, Portugal, real estate investing in Europe, and we go in depth into value investing as an American. We chat about Wyatt's previous experiences on Wall Street, the democratization of real estate, crypto's real world applications, and it's well worth a listen. Hey, Wyatt, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. Hey, Mr. Lamp here. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to uh, great to see you. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, is it Gordy, Gordon, or, uh, or Gordo? Because I see some of the fans calling you Gordo in the comments. Look, I, I don't care. Either way, as long, even Hey You works, as long as you know who you're talking to, that's fine by me. Um, so Wyatt, um, for all the folks that are listening, um, uh, we've known each other for a long time. We go back to high school. And Wyatt, for all the folks that don't know you that long, could you tell a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I went to Tabor Academy with with Gordy. Um, so that's uh, that's in Massachusetts and graduated from Hamilton College for the past, I guess it's a decade now, 10 years. Um, I've been in what I would say is the international investing world, mostly in equities um, and portfolio management, multi-asset portfolio management, um, trained as a trader, but with kind of a view on, um, I guess, global economic trends and and real estate being one of those, it's uh, it's a really interesting time to talk about Portugal, where I am, just the macro picture that I think we're seeing a flight to quality in general um, in the real estate market, and to kind of share um, for some of our other mutual connections who are in the industry, care about this kind of stuff, um, and want to want to learn and keep uh, keep you know learning what's going on not only in the Chicago land area but um, you know in my case in Portugal. So happy to. Uh, try and give a, a background on, on what brought me here. I, I came here for business school, um, but there's some stuff in the real estate market that Americans specifically, I think, care about and have cared about. And then there's some you know headlines and changes that have just hit in Portugal as well. So I'm definitely going to come back to that flight to quality. But yeah. uh, one of the things that I'd like to start off by talking about is Portugal, because I think for most American investors, uh, the only thing that folks think about Portugal is uh, Portuguese wine or wine. say, oh, there, you know, there's the beautiful coast. Um, what's it like investing in Portugal and, and what's the Portuguese business environment kind of look like? So I would say, you know, it's an EU business environment. It is from from a big picture perspective in a stimulus driven world. The stimulus that's given out by the EU is is sizable for the country, right? So that's something to just always know. It's the smallest country in the EU. But when it comes to support, economic support from the EU itself, Portugal does does very well. Um, that drives kind of things on the ground at times, right? They have a golden visa program that Americans have cared about. Um, that's specifically real estate focused. So you have to buy a property that's 280,000 euros. Um, the euro has been fluctuating a lot recently. So that's cause some interest. Um, but past, yeah, I mean, for the past five years, you've had Americans moving here, basically buying properties that they'll fix up and rent. Um, obviously, in, in rare cases, you have people buying mul multiple properties. And I met some of the golden visa holders. Um, so that's from an American perspective, probably what you might have heard about it. 
I started getting interested because I was traveling here and then I would start to see commercials on Golden Visa. Obviously, my computer's geotagged to it or something like that. So I learned a little bit about it. Um, and from a general like Portuguese business environment, I can tell you I'm going to a Portuguese business school. I'm an, the only American there, right? So this has been a real experience, both of adjustment and also understanding kind of the Portuguese perspective, right? Because they have they have a serious axe in certain industries. Wine, you mentioned, port wine specifically where I am in Porto. Um, and in certain industrial industries as well, they're kind of in auto parts, auto manufacturing for Europe and kind of a connection to Morocco and Africa. They're strategically located for, let's say, there's industries that you would never hear about in the U.S. that are actually really strategic to the EU during wartime that when there's a crisis, people start to realize that Portugal has a lot of industrial power. There's one company called BA Glass. So they are, I think, one of the biggest or the biggest European glass bottle manufacturer. They work with tons of companies all throughout the EU and the world. I think they're top 10 in the world in glass bottles, right? Maybe top five. Incredibly high efficiency scores. So that's one company that I visited in my MBA. And then the other one that I'll mention before I pause is called Lactogal. Lactogal is one of the most, their, their milk processing plant in Porto, where I am, is like the most efficient and largest one in Europe, right? So people might think, okay, this is the smallest country in Europe, but there's a few things that they're strong in that Europe relies on. And so that combined with Golden Visa, and I would also throw in the Chinese shipping changes that have happened in the past two years with containers. It makes this region of the world more interesting. It makes the Golden Visa more valuable to certain people who might want to invest here. Um, and yeah, the last thing is that there's been so much property speculation that the Portuguese government has now kind of intervened and they're saying, okay, we might stop the golden visa. And that's where I think that the market um, is reading one thing in the news. And then what's really going to happen here is was very different. So that's where I'll, I'll pause for a sec. Yeah, so I certainly want to come back to um, talking about uh, that kind of um, the whole idea of uh, maybe taking much more of an internal looking focus in Portugal. Yeah. But uh, what I wanted to touch on is something you said earlier, which was Portugal sits in a very unique spot, right? It's on the precipice of the new world, uh, right off the shores of Africa in many ways. And so one of the things I'm, I've always been curious about is, does Portugal have that kind of industrial backbone that you would think situated there? Or is it much more of still uh, a growing or a tourist economy? So tourism is obviously a huge part of the economy, right? They have, you know, they rely on tourists. I'm in Porto right now, which is the second city. Lisbon is the biggest city. It's in the south. Porto's in the north. I would say, you know, you can see the filling up of Airbnb rentals and stuff like that right around this month. And then next month you'll start to notice it. So you can, you can see the dramatic shift seasonally in, you know, just living here as I've been here for four or five months. Um, so yeah, you can tell that it's very dependent on tourism. Um, Porto itself, the city that I'm in Lisbon has tons of companies located there as well, but Porto is a big industrial place. Um, there's a guy in my MBA last year, who he worked for Canadian Tire. So Canadian, okay. Canadian Tire has 
operations all over the place. He was the only North American dude in the NBA in last year's cohort. Um, the, the specific reason he came to Porto is because Canadian Tire has a lot of um, partners in Porto in, from an auto manufacturing standpoint. So there's a company called Salvatore Caetano, which is, I would guess it's probably partially state-owned, but it's a huge auto parts manufacturer and bus they make all the buses the that are hydrogen, I think hydrogen powered or nat gas powered buses in in Portugal. So there's a ton of auto going on here. Um, and then, like I mentioned before, there's glass. BA glass is big because there's wine being filled all over the region, right? So they do a ton of wine production here, um, port wine specifically where I am. And then there's, I, I mentioned Lactogal. And then if you're talking about, okay, fulfillment for e-commerce, the warehouse situation there is a pretty favorable one as well. You have some of the lowest labor costs still in the EU, right? So people are able to operate these properties and these you know, businesses in a way that's still cost efficient. Um, they can cover their costs of labor. And you know, I think there's, there's a pretty good support base for you know, people who are working in factories and stuff in Porto itself. So that whole kind of economy is pretty big here. And I think people don't really know that. Um, you know, I certainly would have, would not have thought that about Portugal and, you know, my knowledge of Spain is, is okay. And then I really know Morocco in the region. Right. But they do, there's, so there's a one American, sorry, there's another American guy in my MBA from last year who he used to work in Florida for like a, some risk company, risk management, global risk management. He ended up taking a job at that company, Caetano, the car company. Yeah. yeah. And he's been traveling to, I think four, he's been in four or five African countries in the past, like two months since he took the job. And so there's a huge auto trade going on between Portugal and many countries in Africa. It's used cars as well as new vehicles. Um, and it's it's funny when I lived in I lived in Morocco for six months, and I met the uh, my my boss's brother in law was like on the Moroccan Moroccan board of used auto parts, right? So Morocco's really close by. There's tons of trade with Morocco. I could the fishing industry is massive as well. I could there, this is one of the biggest fishery areas in the world. Like north of Portugal in Vigo is I think it's the biggest fishery. In, on, on this coast of Europe, um, it's called Vigo, Spain. So this is less than two hours away from where I am in Porto. Um, so there's seaborne trade going on in a huge way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I worked with a guy who's, who's basically dealing with a lot of African government type people um, in the auto parts business. So, you know, there's, there's tons of stuff that I had no idea about before I went to business school here. Um, and yeah, there's a huge industrial base. Most of the people that are in my business school class, for example, are engineering background, educated probably at one, they're Portuguese, most of them, educa educated at the state-sponsored schools to become engineers and have worked on the shop floor for like six to eight years and are now trying to move into management. So that's the, like, there's no real Wall Street thing. There's, there's real estate, obviously, but the culture of work for young people is still very much like shop floor, industrial jobs, engineers who are incredibly smart, have all these talents who are like, okay, I'm going to do this for 10 years. And then they end up in my business school program. So that's, uh, that's my answer. 
So on that note, and, and that that's really cool to see. I, that's something I've heard a lot about um, in Germany as well, um, yeah. of people that kind of really grow up and grow through businesses versus kind of having a managerial class that's disconnected. And yeah. Is, is that something that um, you see um, in Portugal across the board, that there's a lot more internal growth within corporations? And how do you think that affects kind of the culture there and the business culture? I would say, you know, the the business culture itself, there's a lot of family business, right? So that's a trend that in my MBA, I would say there's five family business owners out of a 40 person class. So I'd say it's slightly higher than a typical MBA. I would say that, you know, a lot of people are working on the shop floor at the beginning. There's a lot of people who in the first 20 years of their career, because of the labor market here, it's it's not incredibly high earning labor market, right? So these people are changing careers more willingly, I would say. But there's also, there is the presence of families who have been, you know, large business families in Portugal for quite some time. There's also these types of people in my MBA who work more for the state-owned entities. There's one company that's called Sonai. Sonai has a real estate arm. It's called Sonai Sierra. So there's a guy in my MBA program who works for that real estate arm. And his, you know, he's a big sponsor of the business school itself. So there is a managerial type of class, I would say, in some ways. But versus the U.S., there's a lot more um, understanding, I would say, between people who work on the shop floor and people who work in these this office type environment that I've I've spent almost 10 years as a trader in front of all these screens, right? So the, the thing that I confronted going to business school is trying to explain to people who are incredibly good at what they do, no, <laughs> no logistics and is like the back of their hand, right? Stuff that I really don't know anything about is to try and explain to them like what I did all day just with my head going back and forth to all these screens. And so it's a funny, it's a funny learning moment because in many ways, my executive talents and skills kind of pale in comparison to a lot of the students that I've met in my MBA. Right. So it's been a great experience at Porto business school. And I think for me, the value is being the only American because you can kind of push boundaries in a, in a way socially with people where you learn a lot and you kind of get to control what the students think about Americans because they don't necessarily deal with them on more than like a meeting to meeting basis if they have American clients. So it's a different kind of experience versus me. If I you know, were to apply to one of these top 10 US MBAs, I spend 6X what I, I'm spending here. I got a scholarship to go here, which is like <laughs> that. I mean, that's like, I wouldn't, I don't think I would get that in the US. So it's a value environment, right? Like I would say from a real real estate perspective as well, it's a value environment. There's there's capital starvation in many areas of the country, right? But when you see people deploying capital in a smart way, in a well thought out and well planned way, they're able to earn returns. And I think I think ultimately when it comes to Portuguese real estate, that's that's what I'm seeing on the ground as well. You know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of um Two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand euros, right? That's what most of these properties in the neighborhood that I'm in are probably for sale for, and that's expensive to a lot of Portuguese citizens, right? It's it, to them, it's massive inflation. 
But if you think about the trends that are happening, if you talk to some of the real estate guys that are, I've, there's a couple of real estate guys in my program and I'm like, okay, so they're trying to stop the, the inflation by not letting people from outside the country speculate as much. But don't you think that this is going to signal to local investors that this is a time to maybe deploy their last bit of capital into real estate or to, you know, none of these laws have curtailed the golden visa yet, right? So there's a window where I think you're going to see more speculation. And I think... So so speaking of that and kind of understanding how, you know, there's going to be more speculation coming into the market, if I'm an investor and... And you have the knowledge and the background where you had all the screens, you're trying to find value, yeah. you're trying to find arbitrage in the market. Now I like to walk around neighborhoods, you know, that's, <laughs> my, that's my new thing. Yeah. So where do you think the ultimate value is in the Portuguese market? Because so, there's got to be a place that, some, or, you know, where do you think it's going to be? Because there's got to be some I'm, place to deploy I capital. I'm, I think I'm in the city that is undiscovered. Right. And I've had, I've had some locals be like, dude, don't tell anybody about this place. You know, like there's, (laughs) so Lisbon, Lisbon is the main city. It's one that you'll see tons of pictures of. Everyone travels there, does vacations there and stuff. Um, I think that's been explored and found since the golden visa started, which I think was 2013 or 2014. So there's been a lot of people buying properties in Lisbon for years now. So, you know, that's still possible to find, good deals there. I think, I think outside the city center is probably better. Uh, but Porto where I am is first of all, it's culturally, it's really the center of old Portugal, right? So people from Porto have a famous rivalry with Lisbon where if you, there's the, <laughs> there's the Douro river. And so there's a river that basically splits Porto from a, a, another place called Gaia. And so across that river, People from Porto will be like, oh, that's Morocco, right? So they, <laughs> they have like a big territorial thing about Porto and the city itself is incredibly high to low elevation with all these bridges across the river. And so it's, it's, it's called the undefeated city because historically almost every European country the, in, in the Brits have tried to conquer Porto over, you know, 2000 years. And they've never succeeded because I think what happens is they tr- they try to breach the river and the bridges, they, they blow up the bridges and no one's able to get up the mass. Like, so historically, it's a city that has always been fought for as prime real estate from a, like a topography perspective with this river and the entrance to the ocean, the connection of the river to the ocean, um, the Atlantic. And, and so I think Porto is the place, right? And I, I, was reinforced in that view by some of the anecdotal stuff that I saw on the ground. And then I also saw like in the past two weeks, the financial times um, listed Porto as the number one growth region in Europe, right? Some of this stuff is PR, but it just struck me as this, like a strange coincidence that I'm here and I'm starting to feel this kind of stuff myself to be like, okay, what's the real play? It's that, they want to keep they, they want to keep up with development. So there's a housing shortage in in many cases for regular income earners. So the EU is going to stimulate probably Portugal in general, but Porto is seen as a place that's going to benefit from this. Um, Lisbon is seen as you know it's it's art. Lisbon's been built out, and you know it's 
it's pretty well known. Porto is still like on this verge of being undiscovered and you know, there's Europeans who come and travel here and stuff like that, but it's not really well known by any of my American friends. Um, and so that's the place that I think is really interesting. And I'm, I can, I can mention a couple neighborhoods, even within Porto. Like I lived in this neighborhood, Amial, and I can tell A-M-I-A-L. This is the first place I lived when I got to the MBA program. So I was there for three months before Christmas and I stayed in what is basically a 24 room, brand new ref, like refurbished building um, Airbnb slash long-term stay place. Right. So on my street, I was on a dead end, every building around, and this is a neighborhood that was kind of a 10 years ago, um, not gentrified. You could say a little bit, you know, CD maybe 10, 15 years ago. Right. So it's been on the rise in Porto itself. It's still not considered prime real estate. So I'm staying in this place. It's like there's one brand new building and then everything around it is kind of decayed and abandoned. And there's some people living across the street in small kind of row houses. Right. And so halfway through my time living there, I could see someone across the street is starting to fix up and a similar building. Right. And so it's like you're on the ground floor seeing the two the two polar opposites. And seeing what the price is ultimately to go from one to the other. And you're and in my building, the Airbnb with 24 rooms, that place was printing like there are people oh, yeah. there all the time. So you're seeing one building where there's people flowing in and out, in and out and out. And then all around it, basically, besides a few families, there's not much going on. And, you know, it's it's the idea that, OK, like with a paint job and some small investment, Let's say you can put, I don't know, 50,000 down or 60,000 down or something like that, which is for an American, a little bit more easy to stomach this in this day and age. Um, I think that you're able to see the value creation happening in real time in a place that at the very minimum has tourism and prices are probably not. They're trying to say that prices are like at peak levels and then locals are telling you that they don't expect them to go down. They expect them to go up. And so with all this stuff happening and that golden visa head fake headline that came out in the past two or three weeks, it just seems to me like it might be actually a time when people really start to ramp up looking at the city. And like I've moved now next to the Douro River into, I guess what you would say is a more, it's closer to the city center. It's right next to the river. So it's prime real estate in this neighborhood you can also see the same juxtaposition. There's this old, really old stone road that goes up an incredibly steep hill that's probably been there for hundreds of years. There's like houses that go all the way back into this small neighborhood. And then there's still fields. We're really close to the city center. There's still like stepped farming going on in the place that I'm living. And then right next to it is where you can see development has already happened for 10 years. And there's huge office buildings overlooking what is basically like completely undeveloped land. And so I, I started walking around my neighborhood and um, talked to the, the woman who I'm renting from who manages, she manages 25 rental properties in Porto. And so she gives me some good color. And I saw five, six, seven, for sale properties, one of which was really, really attractive to me. It was close to the old road, very far back into this neighborhood, down this narrow street that one car can get through. You can see around it, some other people have bought and fixed up these places, but there's like 10 
kind of 10, maybe one bedroom apartments, maybe two bedroom apartments. Um, so I asked her, you know, what are these going for? And she said, and then there was a place that is totally like burnt out with no roof. That's also for sale. So I said, okay, what is that place probably going for? And she was like, honestly, the land is really starting to go for like close to 200,000, which is ridiculous to us. Right. Yeah. You said it's, it's between 200 and 300,000 probably for all of these, um, these apartments. Um, and some of them are in okay condition. One or two of them have been rehabbed and are in really good condition. You could rent them, you know, probably a hundred euros or more per night. Um, maybe more if they're two bedroom, obviously. So I think the play is really trying to find one of these properties. Um, and yeah, it's either a fix up play where you try and turn it into a rental or an Airbnb, or it's, you know, it's something that is a really for retirees or people who are trying to switch into a slower lifestyle or just a more old world kind of feel and can afford a second property or something like that and want to get EU citizenship with the golden visa. Um, these are, this is a really attractive neighborhood. It's called Masarelos or um, yeah, it's basically called Masarelo. So it's like, it's, it's, I can walk. It's basically one of the nicest neighborhoods besides Foz, which is right on the beach. But from where I am right now, I can get to the river in five minutes. I can get to the beach maybe in a 20 minute walk. And yeah, I mean, I'm paying for rent on a monthly basis. I'm paying 800 euros. And that is probably, let's say I'm giving them an extra hundred euros a month just cause I'm, I'm not a local. Right. Um, but that's the picture, right? It's from an entry perspective, it's too expensive for many of the locals to really take a swing at some of these. It is to me, not a market that really looks like it's going down. And for the American investor, it's accessible still. It's just, you know, what's your time frame, right? Are you trying to like I, I like I've I've mentioned this to our other Tabor colleague, Zavaruka, Matt. Yeah. He's told me that he's been looking at Spain and Portugal to buy property for a while now, but he's had his misgivings and he hasn't been on the ground that much. Right. So that's basically what I've been seeing. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's a serious opportunity just for patient capital, but also just from what I'm seeing, it's just not understanding, um, the the market from from a local perspective it's just it's capital starvation you have you have a situation where a lot of locals can't keep up with price increases and people from outside aren't capable of doing so so i think so on so on that note and and trying to uh looking at uh a capital starved area what we've been seeing and and interviewing other folks who are in the hospitality industry we had a podcast um a little while back with uh Emmanuel Lavoie from Jetstream. Cool. He does hospitality and really a a unique platform that helps democratize the whole hospitality Airbnb market. Okay. And one of the things that I'm curious about in particular is, as a whole, is the market in Porto um, a pretty democratized market in terms of are there a lot of small mom and pop, you know, 20 doors here and there? Um, Is it... Uh, kind of a stratified market like we're seeing in the United States where there's a lot of people who own 10 or 20 doors and then there's big, huge hospitality groups at the same time. There's, um, there's some, or, that, 
or is it somewhere in between? I would say so. There's a lot of families that own five and ten properties um, and have been renters for quite some time. These are like there's more than I would say in the U.S. That's the feel talking to people that I are in my MBA. Like they'll just mention casually to you that they have like ten apartments that they rent out that have been in their family for a really long time. Um, so there's that kind of stratification going on. The place where I live that had 24 rooms, I would say is like a custom type of living situation, but there's huge student population in Porto. There's four or five, one engineering school, one MBA program, one like 60,000 student university system. So I was staying in kind of a student area and right around me, was a development company called Live, or I mean, it's it's student housing called LIV Live. They probably have, I'm sure they have like a thousand unit, or I mean, they have like way bigger than 24. Let's say that you know around the city they have five or six locations. Let's say I don't know how many doors they have, but they're you know they're the size of medium sized office buildings. These these developments and student housing and mostly like, you know, one bedroom or even studio type living. Um, so there's this trend, I guess, for students also to live in dorm style type apartments where there's shared kitchens and stuff like that. Um, but I would say there's big development development. There's a lot of families that have control of, let's say neighborhoods or certain areas that have just been in their family. Like I'm living on a, a street that is like you can only get one car up and down it and it winds all the way back into these dead ends. And there'll be, there's like, there's like 25 cars parked in this old European, like it, it's not meant for cars. It's like an old world road for like, you know, it's all stone, not paved and stuff like that. Um, so on this street itself, I think there's two, there's two places next to each other that I think are really attractive, but they're, they're not that, uh, maybe two one bedroom they're small like like townhouses i would call them um so there's two four i think five for sale properties and i would bet that in this neighborhood there's like three or four families and extended families that live here right so it's the ownership is condensed into certain neighborhoods and certain families that own the really old build stuff and um just keep repairing it you know, year after year. Um, and then there's developments that stick out like, right. I'm living in a place that's all older um, and some refurbished, but mostly older properties that have been here, maybe 20 years, maybe longer. Um, and then right across from me, there's like a recent development. That's an apartment building. That's very modern. Um, probably has 40 apartments in it at least. And they're bigger. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, even neighborhood to neighborhood, you can see what's been built recently and is designed in a in a more modern way, and you can see what still has those clay rooftops and kind of your old picturesque Portuguese neighborhoods, which is mostly yeah, concrete, stucco, cinder block, two three stories. Sometimes there'll be an addition on top that I don't know if it's technically legal to build on the top floor to build a cinder, <laughs> right? Um, so you have some of that in the older neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, the stratification is you have families that own swaths of property, you have developments and yeah, then you have Sonai Sierra and the big, like the big state owned entities that develop 
luxury kind of, you know, they're, those guys are catering to foreigners in many ways. They're building luxury stuff that you can tell is outside the typical look, more New york or Chicago kind of feel, urban feel in what is still a pretty old world city kind of fishing town in the north of Portugal. Yeah, look, look, there's definitely always those investors that come in and and create the the global uh, homogenous uh, yeah. block multi-unit uh, uh, multi-family developments, and certainly, um, I don't think that's unique to Portugal. I think you could drive to any city in North America or in uh, in uh, Latin America even, and you're going to find that same general block that you're yeah. like, okay, what. Why? Why did you build this? Yeah, in Buenos Aires? You can, you can um, But at the same that. time, that's that's the that's the standard. So when we're talking about one of the standards that we've seen um, in real estate, and one of the issues that we've seen, the, one of the biggest things that's been cramping development is the ability to use the land. And yep. I have friends who do investment in Italy and in France. You're my friend in Portugal. Is, has that been kind of a struggle? Is is there a real pushback from locals against rezoning and yes. particularly rezoning things for multifamily or, you know, flex or industrial? I'm sure that's, I mean, I'm sure in, in Chicago, that's obviously a huge, huge sticking point for a lot of stuff. And, and here you can see it too. Like the old road that I was talking about that goes up this hill and the, it's land that's obviously being protected or there's a lot of protest about it because there's kind of an aqueduct that where all the fresh water or all the water from the top of the hill slowly starts coming down to the river. So it flows through this area. You have people who have probably had family farms or just the, like you have, you know, enough to grow real like crop in this area. And it's almost next to the center of the city. Um, So it's kind of like stepped farmland that has just been taken care of by, you know, families or abandoned even at this point, but it's, it's probably acreage wise. Uh, I would say like five or six, seven acres of land. And it's, it might be way more than that. Um, but it's, you know, it's sizable, a sizable gulf basically within what is all developed on the right, left and up in the, you know, on top of the hill that just is undeveloped. So I know that there's a lot of zoning pushback. Um, you also have, you rightly so have some people who are worried about property speculation where like they're in the same area down at the, like the high street or the front street near the river, there's this one property that has been remodeled and it's all green, beautiful tile on the outside. It's two stories. It's like, it's like a Greenwich village apartment. Like it's a cool, like, like apartment that I would see, you know, I would imagine in like from New York city, like, that's the kind of area it's in, you know, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's been fixed recently. But what I found out from the locals kind of talking to some of the business owners and right next to it, there's, it's like, it's like the, there's two of them right next to each other. And again, one is clean, brand new and refurbished on the outside. looks great. The other one is like bombed out with nothing. Right. <laughs> and so I start talking to people and being like, so who owns this place? It's cool. They have like art on the inside. You can see into the windows. I'm like looking at it for days and they're like, oh, those people, they came and they bought the property and then they fixed the outside front and then they stopped paying the taxes. And so now they're like squatting inside the building and the rules here as they are in New York and some other places prevent you from fixing situations like this in a timely manner. 
or addressing them even on a person to person basis. So that is something that I think really pisses the locals off. And, you know, it's, it's not surprising to me. Um, but that's the kind and of so, thing you can see. Yeah. And so on that note of, of, of folks who maybe aren't that happiest with development that's coming. Yeah, in, there's that. There's definitely that. How do you foresee this next transition? Because there's a lot of global pushback against development. And look, yeah. I'm someone who firmly believes that. And look, maybe that's because I'm a developer. But I firmly believe that development generally, when it's done well, and it's a good placemaking community yeah. that, that it is done holistically, developers are one of the long-term you know, positive the greatest the benefits. Yeah, to a yeah I agree, I agree but, with that too. But you just have, you have poor planning, right? Or bad actors, I guess, right? But you do have a situation where the broader market is looking at these smaller and smaller areas and saying like, look, guys. What, what else are you going to do? It, it, you can either develop this or it's going to be empty. Okay, well, you know, I, I know that, you know, from a cultural perspective, like there is, there is pushback on, you know, on, foreign, on foreigners in some ways just coming up and speculating on property or trying to develop huge swaths of it here. That's definitely a, a factor. I think that they probably are supporting local developers and Sonai type large players to do some of the trickier zones in the city. Um, and, you know, I think that's pretty typical. I think that they understand that globally they are in a geographically safe region right now. Like you have war in other parts of Europe basically. And, you know, Portugal is the only country that really stayed out of World War II. Like there's there's memories of this kind of stuff around where it's like kind of a flight to safety place. So there's a big accepting kind of front where they, they're very receptive of foreign investment. And then when it gets a little bit past um, what they can control, which again is not atypical, it's typical of many places, once there's physical signs that start to get seen on the ground level where, you know, you might have some outcry about it, then they kind of ratchet things back. So that I think that's what you're seeing with the golden visa flip-flopping. By the way, they've flip-flopped on crypto here. Again, I think that they want, they want investment in crypto and property from outside, right? Long-term, I think that that's something that Portugal knows that it, it really does need. So you just have you have market inflection points where they say, okay, we're going to get rid of the golden visa. But then you, again, I talked to this other girl in my MBA program, and she's like, my friend's a lawyer for golden visas. She was like, she has an endless amount of cases that she's working on right now. And yeah, you can look at the headlines, but that's not what's passed, right? So that's that's definitely a case of, I mean, that's definitely something that people are very concerned about. Um, and I would say the solution to it at least from the Portuguese market perspective, is to probably hand many of those development zones off to what are highly connected, you know, connected to the municipality, connected to the government of Portugal, guys who've developed other parts of the city in the past. So that's that's kind of where it where it goes. And it those are the longer term cases where you need to have you need to be well backed to fight to fight the battle long enough to develop the place, right? So I think that's all, all kind of fitting, you know, and can be transported. So, so going along that route and, and looking at um, 
development and, and moving forward, one of the things I, I, I think is interesting that you mentioned is crypto. And look, I, I think anybody who's honest can see we're in kind of a crypto winter right now, yeah. at the very least. Yeah. I, uh... But... But I think uh, at the same time, there's just very interesting developments that have been done, even if you're a crypto bear or crypto agnostic, um, in terms of understanding how crypto might be reshaping some of the ways we interact with the real estate world. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I wanted to ask you specifically, because I know you've done some work with tokenization over the years. Yeah, I have some, um, some funny stuff. How you see that kind of evolving? Yeah, I mean, so I've done some work in crypto where, yeah, I've worked for some institutional guys in the US, Vanek is one, and like learned a lot about the space. You're spot on about the, the crypto winter. I would say it's really a regulation... Um, pause type situation, right? Like I worked for a startup that I think is going to be successful over time because they just do loyalty around brands in crypto. They don't touch the chain. So it's all gradations of stuff in a new industry that I think we can both see is not going away. Um, I, I, you know, I've been in it to the point where I can't tell what's going on at certain stages. I've, I've traded, I've traded some crypto in the past and like, luckily not really in the past two years. Um, but let's say, okay, I mean, five years ago when I was in New York, I saw a good friend of my father's who was pretty established investor start re- the New York City real estate token, okay? So I don't think it went anywhere, but this guy is like Harvard educated, really smart. His company still exists, but I think he's moved on. I think he got the timing wrong. But I think that he, you know, he's very right in his approach about what you know, attach it to real assets, right? So people who are behind this want crypto to be in blockchain and the data tracking and monetization angle of all of this to be attached to real assets, whether it's, whether it's something where like, I, I've had this idea, the startup that I worked for was a location-based loyalty app, right? Where, you know, let's say you have a rental property and you want people to use a location-based app every time they check in if it's an Airbnb or something like that, right? That can all be done now in a, a kind of a web three way that has better tracking of the consumer and stuff like that. I guess from a security perspective for real estate, it definitely has use cases. Then you have like, you know, you have the the tokenization of real assets like people investing in properties and then extending another line where you can invest in a token that represents the value of that property, right? And I've seen this more actually in on the international level because I, I was looking at, I've seen it in Nigeria, right? So yeah. that situation to me is a little bit, okay, it's Nigeria, you're, you're tokenizing real assets, but I think I want to see the actual asset before I buy this token. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of thing that makes me a little bit less confident when I see stuff like that. But in general, if you're seeing the policy side that's happening right now with the Fed, with the CBDC stuff, I think that it's a pretty fair bet that they're going to try and there is going to be a crypto portion of at least the loyalty market. Um, the NFTs could be used for token, you know, all that, all kind of. This, yeah. This I mean, there's, there's broad application, yeah. right? So like within, within our uh, 
podcast itself, we've interviewed a group and I'm going to have on a group later um, that does um, tokenization and cryptography as a way to hold together real estate data. So like you can invest in a token, but this token independently verifies the real estate data from that token. So, you know, hey, independently verified this building has an occupancy rate. This is what, how much yeah. energy it uses. Your payments is, are on energy. time, stuff like that. Yeah. And so it allows you through that process to do a wide range of democratized speculation at the same time. And so look, I think there's a lot of applications. I don't think, you know, uh, buying, you know, Trump coin yeah. or poop coin or whatever you want to do is going to be the future of, of cryptography. Mm-hmm. But I think there are, there are elements of it that are potentially advantageous moving yeah. forward. And I'm very much uh, crypt, cryptop, cryptop, Bitcoin or cryptography or Ethereum agnostic, but I think there is applications going forward. It just probably isn't in, you know, coin manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that I would agree with, right? Like I think that we're going to see regulation come this year with crypto you're going to see a normalization. Like the, the whole thesis from Van Ack and the guys that I worked with before is kind of a regulatory normalization of all this crazy stuff that's been out there, right? Like there's still institutions investing in some of the top coins, investing in staking, right? So the quality, the flight to quality has kind of already happened, as you can see in crypto. And <laughs> yes. that doesn't mean like all of these guys didn't didn't deal with the FTXs of the world either. Right. But that's the shakeout process that needs to happen with the industry. Um, so that the real use case applications that are long-term and this would definitely be real estate based because we might be looking at real estate crisis. Like what I'm seeing a lot of guys doing now who used to work at these funds and are data analysts, they're trying to start real estate data companies because who wants to know about what's really, really going on are the people who speculate in RMBS and all sorts of crazy instruments and all that stuff. They pay huge amounts of money for the real data at the right time (laughs) because they want to make long or short directional bets in size when they think the U.S. housing market's going to crash, right? And so I think we are... Or Reed is going to crash. Oh, yeah. Like you saw... uh, What's that one? Blackstone Reed or something like that? Like that's showing you exactly what the use case is, right? I mean, uh, I, I'll admit, uh, I I don't play the REITs that much. Yeah, because, I've only yeah because I'm already leveraged substantially yeah, in the real estate diversify. Game. Yeah, but but what I say, I'll say is this: is I was recently driving by properties that were owned by a REIT that were sky high, um, and it was a pretty large property of the REIT, and it was vacant. They're doing a bad job of managing the property. And I called up my friend who I knew had a large position in the REIT. And I said, Hey, you might want to, you know, yeah. reevaluate. You this. might want to listen to my story and not just read and, and, like what their press releases are. Right. And the funny thing is, you know, when earnings came, it, it you know, yeah, it, 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 it was up in the data. Right? right. So that's, that's what people are looking for. And so if, if crypto can be a great way to solve that and be a, a monitor for yeah, more real time, history, right? Like that's, it helps democratize the industry, yeah, right? Exactly. So you're, you're, you should, you should have less boom and bust. Like <laughs> if theoretically, right. If, if you're able to track this data better, it should ultimately enable 
the, the really kind of fringe areas where there's booms and busts in the industrial property market and stuff like that to weather the storms a little bit better when I guess they shut off stimulus in the US, which like this year, money growth is negative for the first time in quite some time, right? So oh, yeah. you're going to see stuff in the property market soon. And there's two or three of those REITs that if, from what I know, like I worked at a place that used to have a REIT fund and they got out of the REIT fund business five or six years ago, or seven years ago, something like that. But if you're exposed to one of those listed, publicly listed REITs, then you're kind of in a really bad position because you don't know how bad the damage is and you own paper based on, yeah, you, you really don't know if this is the tip of the, I mean, it should, most people are like, this is the tip of the iceberg. So let's get out now, which means liquidity starts to become a real issue. And so that's why they're gating people. And yeah, this is, we're in the part of the cycle where the hedge funds that have all these illiquid stock positions that if they were to try and liquidate them, they'd be, they'd liquidate them down 25, 30%. They start to find interesting ways of saying, Oh, sorry, we can't distribute the money back to any of our investors. Right. It's the worst nightmare for like a lot of different stakeholders. So if you have this real data in, in real estate properties across or in credit card payments, like there's so many applications that give you slightly better time, series data on all this stuff at the very minimum, it's going to help people dodge one of those Blackstone read situations like your friend who maybe didn't listen. Right. Or, you know, whatever. Hey, it was, it, it wasn't Blackstone by the way, yeah. but, but I'm not going to throw them under the bus, but um, uh, it, it was, it was a read. It was a public yeah. read. And, and so um, I think there's a, uh, there's definitely something to be said about data and the power of, of, of crypto or, or tokenization of data. And, and the biggest thing of, of all is, right, data without access is pretty worthless yeah. to people who don't have access yeah. to it. And so exactly. the more we can open up the world in a world where investors can have access to data, I think we'll have a much more democratized, a much more fair, and probably a, a world with a lot less black swan events. Yeah. Right? I, Which I, would I, be really nice for folks. Yeah. And, and you can see there's, there's and, and this is, you know, I, I went to business school out here because it makes way more economic sense in light of, in light of what's going on right now. So, you know, I think that ultimately you have, you have certain, certain legislation that's also happening with pooled investment vehicles. That's like really democratizing those vehicles where you can have smaller LPs. You can have people who are investing with smaller buy-ins, right? You have the whole fractional stock thing, the Robin hood stuff, but now you're starting to see real like venture capital type vehicles that are, way easier to access for the average person, right? So if you combine that kind of thing with crypto and the real-time data, then ultimately you should be seeing better returns for the average person, right? So, you know, fingers crossed, that's that's what we see play out in the future. And uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. I, I don't personally think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that crypto, I think that the big, the whole FTX thing was a bigger scare then it's not going to be real estate led. It might be that kind of thing that bleeds into real estate, or you just find that there's someone who is crypto exposed who also is in real estate <laughs> like that. And then you have the, the problem, right? But it's not going to be, in my opinion, a 2008 style, um, you know, mortgage lending real estate crash. But you know, the next black swan is, is almost always a little different yeah. than the last one. Yeah. Uh, people are dumb, but they're not that dumb. Yeah. 
Uh, so on that note of kind of predicting the future, uh, I think we're going to go to our final four. Cool. So our final four is uh, just four questions we ask everyone. And they usually give a great indication of not only the person, but a personal perspective of the real estate business world and life philosophy. So the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, and one of my favorites of the final four is where do you see the future of real estate going? Because you're in kind of a unique uh, place in the real estate world uh, in a growing part of Europe and kind of a, a, a unique place in the world. What, what are you seeing in Portugal? So, like I said, I think, you know, the flight to quality is there. I think you're seeing in general, you're seeing Americans investing abroad, maybe an uptick in that based on what I'm seeing in Portugal, but I think there's also anecdotal evidence of, you know, Europe in general in some cases, but Portugal has made it accessible. Um, so that's what I would say I'm seeing in Portugal um, and in the real estate world in general, right? You're seeing flight to quality. You're seeing people who prepared for this years in advance, you know, people who I, you know, a lot of people who didn't receive a, a, a like a lot of audience for many years saying, look, there's, there's something happening in the broader market where hard assets, real assets are worth investing in now. Mortgage rates are going to go up eventually, right? And so we've seen that play out. So I think it's basically, it's a flight to quality. There's also, you know, maybe more than average capital flight to places where you can have an investment property. This is not US only. This is kind of global. I'm sure that, you know, Chinese investors since the golden visa was released here have been here in force, right? And that's because China owns one of the main utility companies in Portugal. There's a big relationship. Um, so yeah, that'd be my answer. It's a, it's a flight to quality globally um, with new areas that are developing because of global trade changes from COVID. From Look, uh, that's certainly something we're seeing on, on, on our uh, um, business end here. Yeah. The flight to quality is something, as long as the market is free, you're always going to see capital uh, wash towards value, right? Yep. So um, that's, that's nothing new. But what is new is kind of, I think, what's happening in Portugal. And that's really cool. Yeah, um, I'm loving it, man. It's uh, like I said, you should come check it out. The wine is, <laughs> it, you can get great wine for two, three euros a bottle. It's like, it changes your whole, uh, it changes my cost structure completely. <laughs> uh, that sounds that sounds dangerous, honestly. Yeah. Um, and uh <laughs> I will be out in Portugal, I would say, uh, probably about a, a year from now. Um, cool, man. I have a good friend getting married. and uh, Let me know. Is it, in, sure. is it in uh, the south, probably, I, I would guess? There I, are I, I think so. Yeah. I would have to double the check. Big marriage. I have a buddy who went to a wedding here. He didn't, I didn't have time to get down there because it's like seven hours away. But that'll be fun, man. You'll really enjoy it. Um, and have some glasses of wine. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Try, <laughs> try, try port wine from the North. It's delicious. Um, and yeah, like I said, I have, I have a guy like an, my, my old broker stock broker has a brother who works for Evercore m and he's here this weekend. And so I might get a phone call tomorrow where I have to go and like, you know, <laughs> meet someone new, but it's, you know, you're seeing, I'm seeing friends and family interested in it as well. So that's exciting. So on, one of our, our questions that I always find exciting is a question that steps back in time. We talk a lot about the future on this podcast, but I think it's important to kind of drive back to the past and yeah. particularly the past of the person that we're interviewing because we only interview people who are interesting. So um, why can you tell us a little bit about 
um, if you could tell yourself something, yeah. say in, in when you're leaving college, what would what would be the advice you give? Um, and uh, yeah. you know, could you give it to everyone else here? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things I would tell myself is to be more patient as a young business person to really try and appreciate the stuff you're learning and the people you work with, because at the beginning of your career, at least in the, in the bubble that I was in and, you know, that is, you know, to be taken with a grain of salt as well. I was in New York city. I'm doing the whole wall street thing and all that stuff. Um, but it's and that's, the, that's a totally different animal. It's, yeah. Yeah, imagine, yeah, trying to explain to Portu- to Portugal Portuguese people is like they're like, oh my god. Um, but the uh, the the culture of of business in the U.S. is obviously changing, right? Like it's a tech enabled culture. I would advise my younger self to okay, learn coding if it's what you're really good at doing, but to be more in tune with tech trends. Um, and to be to be verbal about it, right? To be someone who's talking about it and expressing their ideas about the future from a tech perspective, even if it's not the, the direct industry that you're in, right? Like there's a guy who's in real estate. I don't know. His name is Jake Goldstein or something, but he's like some other guy that I follow. I don't even know the guy, but he's from New York. He's a real estate broker. I think Marcus and Millichap or something like that. But he's positioned himself as someone who talks about blockchain, talks about all this stuff for two, three years with confidence, right? And that can make a big change in your career, right? And like creating your own podcast does. So it's to it's to show your individuality in a way that is very accepting, right? And when I was young, I was like, I'm 33 now. So let's say I was 25 when I was 26, when I first got onto a trading desk, it was a high, like a, just an incredibly adrenaline, but also fear ridden environment, right? So you have to really cope with stress in an objective way and to find habits for yourself um, that develop your skills outside of work. They can be solitary or they can be group like sports, stuff like that. That's always been something that's part of my life. Um, it would be to advise myself to really focus a lot on exercise, um, which I, I partially did and partially didn't. But yeah, in general, it's, it's, it's really about, I mean, as I get older in my career and, and being an MBA student, like I could end up doing a few different things. I could be a fundraiser. I could go back to trading stocks. I could try and be a risk trader, trading stock or stock trader, which has kind of died. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm in an industry that basically it was almost dead when I got into it. Right. But it was, it was still a very vibrant and, um, and great industry to learn from people. And so it's to kind of separate what you learn about people, what you learn about the truth of life over a 30 or 40 year career arc, right? And to really appreciate it at a younger age, right? Because I would bicker with people, older guys on trading desks and I get really competitive with people and all that stuff. And that's part of the business. But you have to be able to step back and take that and say, okay, like, some of the things that these people are saying to me, they're trying to give you like a warning that you don't, you don't understand because you're very young. But now that I'm 33, I find myself giving these kinds of warnings to younger people who are, you know, and again, do they always listen to me? Absolutely not. Right. So it's one of these generational things that it's, it is worth hearing the cautionary advice from people that are in an older industry or older generation 
that may be losing their edge in the industry. Okay. That, that's something that I saw all the time. Right. But that doesn't mean that these people don't have incredibly good life advice. And many of them have, it, it, they may be losing their edge in the equities business at age 50, but when they were 20 and 30, they made an incredible amount of money. So their perspective is something that you don't really understand. Right. So it's trying to be open to other people's perspectives and to really like intentionally try and take the good stuff away from every relationship you have with work. Like there was a woman that I worked with who I had all sorts of problems with her. But one of the things that she told me early in my career was try and take one good thing from everyone that you meet in the industry, because some people are many people are only really good at one thing or a couple things, but they're incredibly talented at that one thing. That doesn't mean that they have incredible success in industry because sometimes luck doesn't go your way or whatever, but they have one thing that they are really good at. And if you can absorb their methodology behind that, even 10%, and you can bring that attitude to every person that you meet in the industry, it's only going to be positive for you. And you're going to meet people who are incredibly successful that you ascribe some traits to them, or you ascribe some kind of ideology about how they got where they are. And then you're going to find out that you're totally wrong or that they're really not the person that they portray out there. Right. So there's layers beneath the surface within every industry. And it's worth really getting keyed into that. I would say before you're 30 years old, because it just gives you a little bit more calmness. And as you get into mid career, you're just making negotiations and doing things in a way that have bigger consequences for the next five years of your life. Right. So that's part of why I went to business school because you know, I, I need a year to really distill the stuff that I learned and separate it from all like the really like ego driven, emotional trading type of mentality that doesn't really fit even in one slightly different part of my own industry. Right. So yeah, that's something that it, there's a lot of nuance to the relationships you have with people you meet early in your career. And I think a lot of people, especially our generation. Well, with age comes wisdom, yeah, right? Exactly. So like, that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of where we get. And I, I'd certainly like, I'd love to have the knees I had when I was 22, yeah. but, uh, the, the stuff between these two ears are, are very much worth yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So on that note, and, and as we kind of shift into uh, uh, the last two questions of our final uh, final four questions, I'm curious about if you have a book that help that could help provide some wisdom to folks. I'm a big reader, um, not always in, in purely uh, text form. Sometimes I'll I'll put in the uh, the buds and uh, and listen to an audio book. But uh, is there a book that you and it could be more than one book that you think has, has really influenced have, your business career or your mindset. I have, uh, I, so one thing is mindset, right? And I, I try and read like creative stuff, even poetry to get out of the whole work thing. And so right in front of me, I have this book my mom gives me, it's called new cowboy poetry. So my name's Wyatt. So there's a little cowboy thing going on there. And I just, uh, <laughs> I like to read these. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's my escape from work type of thing. Also writing, um, writing and then rereading what you've written. I have like eight journals that I've written over 10 years, like full ones. And so constantly rereading stuff that I wrote down that I don't even know what mindset I was in when I wrote it, what pissed off about work, stuff like that. Just like getting that back 
is really it's nostalgic, but it also helps you. You don't learn from it necessarily right when you write it down. You learn from it if you go back and read it. And then for me, from a purely trading type of book, there's one called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. This is something that will give you like a an understanding of how different being a trader or a speculator was in a totally different era versus the electronic world that we live in right now. And it just kind of reminds you like, it gives you a lot of, uh, you know, pers- it gives me an entrepreneurial kind of feeling, even though it's about trading. And in my experience actually working, there's there wasn't that much that was entrepreneurial about the trade doing large trade executions for a huge institutional investor there's a lot of information absorption that you can do that then has secondary and tertiary learnings that you can bring to bear over time, right? But you're not really being creative in the moment. And so that book that book got me into trading personally for myself, which I have to say I did have success in in 2020 and 2021, which enabled me to live in Morocco and take like kind of an advisory job for a while. But I am not... Uh, a regular trader on a day-to-day basis. I don't trade futures. I don't really trade options, but it gave me the confidence to say, all right, dude, like you've been learning about this industry for 10 years. Why don't you try and do it on your own? And I think this is applicable to real estate professionals, especially because eventually you're going to buy your own home. You're going to buy a property, right? And so it's very transferable in your business. For my, In my business, you see what I think is incredibly sad now because it's so different now. You see people who have a great risk appetite, who are very sharp guys and girls who never get a chance to take risk when they're of the age where taking risk makes a lot of sense. And so (laughs) I, so I like, I got to do it only when I, like I had enough savings basically after eight years of my career, some student loans, I got rid of that stuff. And then I had enough to trade with and I had success. Right. And it was, I, let's say I made a hundred percent on a 30 stock portfolio in one year with a lot of, with a lot of ugliness and bad timing and stuff mixed in there. Yeah. It was the end of a bull market. So I had some help at my back. Right. But it gave me like, it gives you your own thing, right? So if you have, you can have a lot of success in your career uh, independently of this stuff, but you're going to have ups and downs in your career. And if you have something like that, some hobby, some kind of knowledge, where you've broken the seal, you've taken the risk to try it, and you've had you you haven't had your teeth kicked in. You know that you can maybe do this on a regular basis, on the side throughout the rest of your life. It gives you that little piece of autonomy, and again, and and also living in foreign countries for me has given me that as an American, which is something that we enjoy more than you know people from other countries that would be coming to Portugal. You have a little bit of social credit, which I think social credit is going to be a huge, that's something that's going to be a huge trend for the next 10 years in general. So that's something that I think for your own autonomy and a podcast might be my next idea, right? To create some of that same feeling. But that was a book that got me into, okay, I'm going to actually take a shot at this in my own industry I'm going to risk what I have to risk and potentially lose and see what happens for a year. And I was rewarded for taking that risk. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that I think is such a challenge for most people in a whole wide range of professions. It's really difficult. That's what getting older I've realized is that there are even, there are well-capitalized guys that I've worked with throughout New York city who can't, they, they can't pull the trigger on anything still. And they're in their mid thirties. 
So, but the world changes when you're in your yeah, 20s, yeah. right? So, like, what I, what I what I always say to folks is, if you're if you're 22 or 23, that's the time to buy that flex building yeah. and leverage up. That's the time to go ahead and 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 buy that multi-tenant unit and and use the Burr method and and flip it yeah. or hold it. That's the time when you should go and you should get into the yeah. business and really go for it because look. Once you got kids on the way, or you have you have a world where you you don't want to take that level of risk, yeah. you know you can start over again in your twenties yeah. very easily. Yeah. If you're forty five and you've got two kids to put through college, you can't start yeah. over as easily. And so, like that's something that I think is very important for all of our listeners is look take that effort now and take that risk now because yeah. you're you're not going to be able to take it. Yeah, and, and save young because you know like. I definitely, if I had been a little bit more diligent about that, I would have had just more, I would have slightly more capital and my trading success could have been a sizable amount of money where it was for me, it was like enough for one year to live and work part time or something like that. Um, but don't, you know, it's a confidence thing. Like I was sitting in a place where I really was learning deep industry trends and I had achieved a certain type of seat where, okay, I could develop my own theses and invest and potentially hit something that makes 10x, which I've done. And so, you know, when I talk to people in my MBA program and I tell them like, yeah, dude, like I, I owned a couple of these stocks and they did 10x, they do not believe me. And this is where I, and this is where I get to saying like, look guys, it didn't change my life. Okay. It didn't, it didn't like create some new world that I live in, but I have done it. And so that, hey, that hey, one in zero what? situation. <laughs> so, you know, if it did change your life, if it did change your life, uh, you'd be worried about how probably leveraged you were up. On yeah. It, right? Well, I mean, so, yeah, I was like, I, this was, this was lucky, dude. I had, I, I, these were four and $500 bets that made me $10,000 or something like that. Right? Oh, oh no, the big I mean, mistake, yeah, I mean, the big mistake if you live in a world where one thing changes your life, that means you're probably, yeah. you have all your chips yeah, yeah. on one and you're, thing. Right? And, and, you're and, betting on luck in, in, in a way that is very risky <laughs> in some cases, right? Um, and, and unless you're betting on yourself yeah. and you're putting all your chips on your- Not entrepreneurial venture or something or, like that. Or, 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 or a venture or a business yeah. where you have some capacity control. control it, yeah. I would never recommend yeah, yeah. that. So. No, I know. I had, I was lucky. I was like, there's one stock F U T U that just went so crazy. And, uh, it's, that was the learning on the other side because I owned it and I had, I, I left a job, right. When, if I had kept kept that job and had a little bit more steady income, I probably wouldn't have sold that stock. Right. And so there's all these things that you can look back and say, coulda, woulda, shoulda, or whatever, but that, that thing did 40 X. So, that would have hey, changed hey, my know, life, but you know, like I had, you know what? We all have those yeah. stories, right? I mean, I, I sat there and I remember, what was it? It was like late March of 2020 and Penn, that stock. Yeah. Penn gaming before. or Penn national. Yeah. And, and I said, you know what? These casinos aren't going to go bankrupt. The government's going to bail them out. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to put 10 grand on here. And, and one of our um, venture investors in our group, I was talking with him on the phone. He's like, don't do it. Don't do it. You idiot. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. And, and now I'm like, come on, man. I, I could have yeah, uh, like, right. completely uh, bought a new house. Yeah. But at the same time, like, 
like there are risks that we make. I, I'm in a business where we make calculated risks for yeah. investors, and we get yeah. eight to ten percent. Yeah, but it's guaranteed. Right. It's right now. That's people are dying for eight to ten percent. So yeah. and that's and what you're it's stable. And sometimes you have losses, and sometimes you have things like the COVID pandemic that will affect a portion of your portfolio, mm-hmm. and you have all sorts of things. But being a reasonable, rational investor is ultimately. The best thing yeah that's the reward too because the, the reward of that rationality in a long-term view where you can also have rational short-term views within there is that you're going to have multiple opportunities right you're not going to really just be leveraged to one thing so that's but hey maybe i should have put all the chips on pen right <laughs> i know one guy in new york who did fifty thousand dollars of calls in gamestop and he was right and it was the right time and I haven't really, I don't know if what's changed for him after that, but I know he's got a big apartment in New York City. But again, hey, you know. hey and, and I know a guy who was all in on um, Dogecoin right yeah. before Elon went on <laughs> SNL. And uh, I can tell you this, uh, it did not turn out well for him. So yeah, um, not surprising. So on that note of, of trying to go and trying to understand things that I think will turn out well for us um, is... Um, the last question, and this is the most important question uh, on the podcast, is who should we bring on next? Because we bring on a wide range of people from all sorts of different industries. Some of them are you know, hospitality, real estate people. Some are hardcore industrial. Some are um, burr flippers um, yeah. or you know, uh, multifamily folks. Um, why? I would say, I would say, okay, so I know me and you have like, a bunch of real estate connections in common. Um, I think Matt Savaru could be a good guy to talk to about real estate. I know Chase Gordon, my buddy from New York City, is doing very well in real estate there um, that we are connected to. Um, I would say also Tabor Academy. Um, there's a conversation to have with them, whether it's about sustainability in their regional real estate market could be really interesting, right? Or just about some of the changes that are happening at the school as, you know, kind of alumni leader that you are, like, that could be a timely one because I know that stuff is kind of changing there. But I would say, you know, I mentioned Chase, I mentioned Matt. Who else from Tabor do I know who's in real estate? I think it's there's 40 Gates is a guy that I went to school with. He's a Chicago real estate guy. I don't know. I have to I haven't messaged him in a while, but there's there's definitely some mutual connections that we have who are. Uh, I definitely should reach out to Matt. Yeah, um, because I. I'll, I'll you know connect with him kind of. I told him I was. I told him I was going to be talking to you. So that's a yeah. guy to. But um, I, I just never put. Too he knows a little bit about Portugal. State, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, um, he would be a great voice to have on. And certainly, I think it's very cool what's going on at Tabor with sustainability, yeah. and that's something that we should really um, look into. So the last question that we ask, and this is the this is the second most important question, um, is. How does someone get in contact with you? Ivan? How does someone get in contact with me? Okay, so you can reach me on WhatsApp. That's my uh, European uh, outpost now. It's, uh, what is my phone number? 203-414-8069. Whoever's listening, uh, you know, if you're if you're interested, you can send me a WhatsApp message. Um, and then honestly, LinkedIn is really, LinkedIn is my go-to thing. And I think that's where I started to see you popping up, doing your podcast, kind of being out there about the real estate industry as an influencer, right? So I think that that platform, it used to be Bloomberg, right? I I was a Bloomberg guy for eight years doing all the screens and all that stuff. It was a completely centralized communication platform for me. Um, 
It's great term. Yeah, <laughs> it's really nice. I kind of miss it, but I haven't been using it in like two years. And now business school, they have one, but I, I don't really log in that often. Um, but, you know, that was like a totalitarian thing for me, too, for like 10 years. Like now I'm kind of enjoying not being part of it. But LinkedIn has been a steady platform that I've used since I started my career. And I think I was smart in really trying to friend tons of people and connect with tons of people early. And then I saw how the platform developed where, you know, there's there's guys that I've worked with who their main business front in terms of collecting people to reach out to is LinkedIn. And these guys are doing private placements. They're doing what I would see as high finance, right? In, in some regional areas, like these are international guys, but um, LinkedIn. No, I mean, um, the syndication folks that are on LinkedIn that are getting groups together and deploying capital, it's it's phenomenal. And people who don't understand what's going on on LinkedIn are really missing out. I agree. I agree. People sometimes give me a hard time for it, but I'm I'm like, look, man, I have 10,000 followers. Like, yeah. That actually is a currency at the business school that I go to because they are trying to build their presence and I'm the only American student, right? So I just <laughs> hey, look, I just post there's a lot of wrong ways to use LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. a lot of wrong ways to use LinkedIn. Don't go out there and just advertise. And, no, no, and of course that, that's all you're going to do, but there are a lot of right ways. It's to. it's so, really thoughtful thoughtful posts that I think are really starting to gain traction. Like people say you should post once a day. I haven't really gotten there yet, but I've been getting closer to that amount of posting and I've seen engagement levels go up, right? So yeah, yeah. You want to post like, I think three to four times a week. Uh, I don't think you want to post seven days a week personally. That's as somebody who does it a lot, but but three to four times a week is real good. Cool. So on that note, uh, I I actually have a showing that I to run to. Um, which is why we had to bump, bump this up. And once again, thanks, Wyatt, for doing yeah, this. Um, it was awesome. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully, we pop you on the podcast uh, in a little bit. Yeah, so, that would be uh, great. If you want a if you want a golden visa update, I'm here until <laughs> December. So, you know. All right. In the meantime, we're going to hold uh, you to that. I can send you some names of Portuguese wine you might find in uh, the U.S. and we can take it from there. Thanks again to Wyatt Clark. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like five-star rating or review your comments and interactions and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests you can follow us on youtube spotify or wherever you get your podcasts i'm gordon lamphere with real finds podcast thank you for listening